Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see your faces. That's one of my favorite parts about emceeing or preaching, because I get to look at all your faces for an extended period of time. And I love them. (laughs) And so she's right. We start a brand new series this morning. It's called Hello, My Name is Jesus. We're going to spend the next eight weeks um, in the gospel. And the gospel is the combined um, message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different perspectives on the same message. And so we're going to talk about his life, his ministry, um, his, his struggles, his triumphs, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. And we're just going to get to know him more. You know, when you meet someone for the first time, maybe they're wearing a hello, my name is tag. And, you know, you're getting to know them and you, you begin to learn what they're about and what they like or don't like, what their attributes are, what their personalities like. And so that's what we're going to be able to do uh, the next two months as we unpack who Jesus is as we go through each of the four gospel accounts. But first I want to define what I mean, what the Bible means by the word gospel. And so um, the Greek word that we translate gospel uh, from is euangelion. And so whenever that word shows up in the Greek, it's translated gospel, and it means good news. And it always refers to a king and the kingdom he's bringing, the announcement of a king and the kingdom that comes along with him. So that is what the good news is. And so Jesus goes on to the public scene announcing the good news. His kingdom has come near and he himself is bringing it. Um, And so a key part of the gospel is the moment of the cross when Jesus died to pay our sin debt so we could be saved and spend eternity with him after we die. But actually, in the New Testament, that word is broader. Um, The good news is about the reign of the new king and his death and resurrection, but also all the implications that the new kingdom has for us. Amen? All right. So um, what we're going to do this morning as I go through the book of Matthew is... I'm going to pull out some attributes, some, some key aspects of who he is. So the first one is that Jesus brings a new kingdom. And so we are going to um, understand first who this king is. And the first four books of the New Testament will help us understand that as they are the ancient biographies of Jesus. So Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. And he emphasizes um, presenting that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Mark is a book of action. We're going to see that he uses the word immediately over 40 times. So he is portraying Jesus as the servant king of action, writing more about what Jesus did than what he said. And all these perspectives are so important. Then we have Luke 
who is a Gentile author. He's actually the only Gentile author in the whole New Testament. And he's writing to a Gentile audience. Luke was a doctor and wrote to present a full explanation of Jesus to Theophilus. He emphasizes Jesus' compassion and his aim to seek and save the lost. And then we have John, and he's the most different than the other three Gospels. He's written by Jesus' beloved disciple, John, and it's written from like a wise old man's perspective. Um, He wrote this much later in his life after the first three Gospel accounts had been written, so likely he would have read, read those already. And um, so he writes to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So this is how you can look forward to the next couple of months as we look into this. But today we're going to focus on Matthew. And I will be doing some comparing and contrasting between the gospel accounts, but primarily Matthew. How does Matthew fit in with the rest of scripture? Why did the early church leaders decide to put Matthew at the front of the line of the four gospel accounts? He wasn't, it wasn't the first one written, Mark's account was. Well, the reason is that Matthew, better than any other gospel account, picks up right where the Old Testament leaves off. So Malachi closes the Old Testament with a promise. One day God will send a Messiah to step in and bring rescue and freedom and peace and joy to the people. So Matthew opens the New Testament by declaring that this promise from centuries past is now fulfilled. The Messiah has come at last. Hallelujah. And Matthew does it very convincingly, quoting one ancient Jewish prophecy after another, explaining how Jesus fulfills each promise. Matthew shares the Messiah's coming and his ministry, but also his future plan for the kingdom and for the building of his church. Here's a quote from the Holman New Testament commentary. Matthew serves as the hinge upon which the Testaments pivot. Matthew is the gateway to the New Testament with the strongest of closing connections to the Old Testament. Matthew explains in mini Bible form God's entire plan of the ages from Genesis to Revelation. So the writer of this gospel account is Matthew, and he was a tax collector in Capernaum when Jesus recruited him as a disciple. It takes place um, in Israel. Most of Jesus's ministry takes place in the rolling hills of Galilee, the picture here, in a region in what is now northern Israel. But there's the Sea of Galilee that you can see there in the picture, which was a large freshwater lake. Well, at least large to them. To us, it would be very small. (laughs) Living in it has Michiganders. It's only like a fraction of the size of our Lake Michigan. 
but you know, in what I'm reading, they're like this large freshwater lake. And I'm like, really? How large? Oh no, it's not large, but okay. It's large. It's relative. So, um, so let's begin. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. So Matthew begins with a genealogy. Has anyone ever thought, what a boring way to start a book? (laughs) Well, Jews from Matthew's day would have loved it. Jews kept a record of their ancestors, partly because certain rights and responsibilities were inherited. Uh, Priests descended from Aaron, Moses' brother. Kings and the coming Messiah would descend from David. So Matthew's genealogy is like a legal document. And by comparing it to other genealogies, Jews of the day could confirm that Jesus met all the ancestral requirements for the Messiah. He was a Jew descended from Abraham and related to King David. But it's interesting to note that his genealogy does not match Luke's genealogy. And the other two gospel accounts don't share a genealogy. Only some of the, only a few of the same names show up in the two genealogies between Matthew and Luke. But each list is condensed, skipping generations. And one genealogy reflects more of Jesus's legal ancestry through Joseph, while the other reflects his biological ancestry through Mary. Um, Another interesting thing about Matthew's genealogy is that it includes women, which was very rare. Most genealogies of the time didn't. And Matthew's women aren't the most notable ones, like maybe Sarah or Rachel. He he spotlights some that are, um, some might consider more unsuitable. Uh, Tamar, who had twins by her father-in-law. Rahab, the Jericho prostitute who helped the Israelite spies. Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite, who is King David's great-grandmother. Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, who David had an affair with. And I believe it's significant that Matthew included these women to show the types of people that God loves, that he loves to redeem, and that he loves to to work through, to bring about his purposes. Amen. And Matthew himself was a, a former rotten apple. <laughs> so, so he had firsthand experience of God's amazing rede- redeeming power. As a tax collector, you turn your back on your people and kind of work for the enemy and exploit your people. So um, I think the key about Jesus here that we can learn is that he loves to redeem and work through all types of people. Amen? Okay, Jesus goes public. Skipping the next 30 years in Jesus' life, Matthew jumps to the start of his ministry marked by two events, baptism and temptation. Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized, Matthew 3.13. And John is confused why Jesus would come to him to be baptized, tries to talk Jesus out of it, right? Because baptism symbolizes the spiritual cleansing of God's forgiveness 
But Jesus is the son of God who came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him. So whether Jesus did it to confess the sins of the human race as his sins or to show everyone the path he wants them to follow, he tells John, we must carry out all that God requires. So he's baptized and God is well pleased with Jesus for it. Afterward, Jesus goes through something that makes him relate with people at a very real level. He enters the desert. He fasts for 40 days and then Satan tempts him, trying to get Jesus to worship him. The same act he pulled, which got him thrown out of heaven. And he uses some of the same enticements that every human faces, the desire for comfort, prestige, and power. He offers bread to satisfy Jesus' appetite. He pressures rescue by God's angels, trying to say, let me remind you who you are, Jesus. You know, you could just jump off and the angels would catch you, right? He's pressuring that. He offers Jesus all the kings of the world, if only He'll worship him. But Jesus refuses it all and remains focused on his mission. That's another point. He refuses temptation and remains focused on what the Father had sent him to do. Next, we have Jesus' most famous sermon. The end of chapter 4 of Matthew. Jesus went about announcing the good news of the kingdom, teaching and healing. So, Jesus moves from his hometown of Nazareth to the fishing village of Capernaum, which is a day's walk north. And the village rests on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And on one of the gently sloping hills nearby, Jesus preaches what is perhaps the most famous sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Now, Luke's gospel contains a small portion of this teaching. The other two don't, although Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. But as you'll see, according to this picture, the rolling hills along the Sea of Galilee can fit either description hills or plain. Most likely, this sermon was a series of talks, the compilation of all his most important teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is all about disciples living in the community of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is announcing the good news that he has come and that God is king, and he is the one bringing this reality into being. Then Matthew neatly unpacks um, what it looks like to live with God as king and what it's going to look like for us to live as citizens of this kingdom. He begins with a famous section called the Beatitudes. And um, if you're doing the, the Bible in one year reading with us, we've been this past week, we've been reading through Matthew, which is amazing how it, it's layering and I'm sure God is speaking things to you, and he's going to speak more to all of us this morning. <clears throat> but in the Beatitudes, the citizens of his kingdom aren't promised success in the world or a smooth ride, are they? 
Instead, he gives assurance in the middle of discomfort and failure. And it's an urging to press on anyway, humbly serving God and others, even when it's difficult. Beatitudes share the types of people through whom God's kingdom is exercised in the world. It's the meek. It's the merciful. It's those hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's the pure in heart. And by our being those sorts of people, that is how God's kingdom comes in the wider world. The Beatitudes seems to assume that if people are going to model the weight of Jesus and live like this, they're going to look like those who are despised. But in reality, they're the fortunate ones. They are the blessed ones. They're, the blessing is over them, and the blessing goes through them. So here's another key. Jesus models and teaches kingdom living. Now let me give you some headlines from the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we get the golden rule as we are accustomed to calling it now. Do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law. Regarding anger, he says, settle your differences quickly. For revenge, do not resist an evil person. For adultery, anyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery. Regarding judging others, the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Regarding enemies, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. For charity, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. Your assets, don't store up treasures here on earth. Store up your treasures in heaven. For money, you can't serve both God and money. Regarding worry, I tell you not to worry about everyday life, about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what, you're, what you'll wear, but seek first his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. Regarding prayer, don't put on a showy prayer to get attention. Your father knows exactly what you need. This, of course, isn't everything he said, but it gives you a boiled down example. And then he says, this is how you should pray. And then we have the Lord's prayer. Why don't we, let's pray it together aloud right now. You know what? Let's stand up. You guys get a chance to stretch your legs. Here we go. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can be seated. So in his teachings, he took the known Old Testament laws and he upped the ante significantly on every point, didn't he? Now it's beyond the sinful action only. Now he's measuring the thoughts and the intentions of the heart before an act is even made. The standard is perfection. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father 
is perfect and it leaves the followers and even us today going, how is that even possible? And, and that's the point. It's not possible for us. But if we humble ourselves and we recognize our sin and we repent, he forgives us, he cleanses us, and he says that with God, all things are possible. So another key for us about Jesus from this section is our thoughts and motivations matter. He is perfect, and his standard is perfection. His ministry and miracles. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues. We're on to chapter 9. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. He heals a man with leprosy. He does a long-distance healing for a Roman soldier's servant, telling him, go back home because you believed it has happened. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and calms a fierce storm. Matthew shares many of Jesus' miracles with us. Chapter 9 is when Matthew, our author, is beckoned by Jesus to come follow me. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And then after that, Jesus has dinner at Matthew's house with all of Matthew's sinner friends, and the Pharisees are aghast. And they go to Jesus' other disciples. Why does he do that? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So a key for us to learn about Jesus is that he desires mercy and he calls sinners. Compassion was Jesus's um, motivating emotion, not his only one, but a predominant emotion that motivated him was he would be moved by compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion is a primary emotion of Jesus's. In chapter 10, we have the sending out of the 12 disciples as a disciple of a rabbi, which by the way, we read it and we think, oh, that's so weird how he's like approaches, you know, the fishermen. He's like, follow me. And they just drop their nets and, and go. And it just seems so strange. But, but growing up as a, as a Jewish boy, like that was the hope of every Jewish boy that they would be called by a rabbi. And so they were kind of always ready and hoping for that moment. And so what it meant to be, um, to be a disciple of a rabbi, then your job was to listen to the rabbi's teaching, observe how he lives so that you can live like him. And so that you can teach his teachings to other people. 
And so here he's sending out his 12 and he gives them authority to drive out evil spirits and authority to heal sickness and disease. And he tells them things like, freely you have received, so freely give. He tells them, be shrewd as snake, as a snake, but innocent as a dove. He says things like, don't be afraid of those who can um, harm the body. What does he say? Let me, I'm going to look it up. Good. And I'm not remembering it. What chapter did I say we're in? 10. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever does not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge him. I will disown him before my father in heaven. He tells them to take up their cross and follow him. And those who don't are not worthy of him. Whoever finds his life will lose it. I can't get past this part all week. Just keep weeping. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I just, I'm so impacted by and challenged by how Jesus didn't care about anything except what his father wanted him to do. And then other people. He never gave a thought to his own reputation. He never, oh, if I say this, am I going to look silly? Oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be embarrassed. Um, I'm going to look foolish. What are they going to think of me? And I'm so challenged because I feel like that's most of what I think about. And he thinks about it not at all. And, and when he would look at a lost person, he wouldn't focus on the awkwardness of their brokenness. He would look with compassion on them, seeing the wounds. Seeing the wounds and the circumstances that contributed to the situation. He would, com- he would have compassion toward the bondage that they were in and see their need for a savior, see their need for rescue, see their need for healing. And not just physically, emotionally too. So I'm just really challenged by this. So another key for us here is he still calls disciples to follow him to be trained by him, to live like him, and to prioritize him above all else. Being willing to take up their cross and follow him and lose their life for his sake. So we go on here. Um, There's more healings. There's more teachings. We get into an awesome parable section in chapter 13. 
And Jesus just draws an incredible following. His teachings don't sound like any other rabbi. His authority is clear. He's captivating. And the crowds are drawn to Jesus because of his words and his miracles. And so another key about Jesus is that he is compelling and people are drawn to him. And so as Jesus walks from place to place, crowds follow him, even when he needs a break. (laughs) And this brings us to one of his famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. And actually, this is one of the only miracles recorded in all four gospels, gospel accounts. The feeding of 5,000 plus. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. About 5,000 men were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. But what happens is, as I mentioned, he needed a break. Um, But so he's like slips away in a boat, but the people are following along the shoreline, this massive crowd, and they catch up to Jesus in this remote area. And weary as he was, compassion drove him to heal their sick. But then evening approaches. And so the disciples advise Jesus to send the crowds away so they can go buy food somewhere else but Jesus suggests a potluck an idea that the disciples had already thought of and dismissed five loaves and two fish were all they had which is barely enough to satisfy two hungry stomachs but Jesus shows his power over creation in a miracle of the fish sandwich variety Bread, fish, put it together. I don't know if they ate it like a sandwich, but. And the disciples distribute plenty of food for everybody. The crowd of 5,000 plus eat their fill and the disciples collect a dozen baskets of leftovers. One basket for each disciple to carry. So our key, nothing is impossible for Jesus. Let's say that. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. The next chapter, Matthew 15, records that Jesus feeds 4,000 plus. So a similar miracle again. In chapter 16, Jesus takes his disciples a day's walk north of the Sea of Galilee to a predominantly non-Jewish area called Caesarea Philippi. There, Jesus asks his disciples who the people say he is. And they answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead, some a prophet, or um, some think that you're Elijah returning. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And for that answer, Jesus blesses Peter. Rabbis often did this when a student gave a correct answer to an important question. Simon was Peter's name. Jesus gave him the name Peter, a word that means rock. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter was already 
the leader of the disciples. So he would likely be a key leader moving forward. But later we read how this played out as Jesus began to build his church through Peter. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Peter would preach the first sermon. The church was jump-started as more than 3,000 Jews who were assembled for the Passover festival in Jerusalem would be saved. And so a key for us, Jesus is building his church and nothing will successfully overcome it. Now the enemy tries to pick away and meddle and cause some destruction here and there. But the truth is nothing will successfully overcome it. Even the gates of Hades will not. All right, well, we made it to chapter 16. I think that is a good stopping point for today. And so let's just review some of the things that we have learned from our meet and greet with Jesus. <laughs> he brings a new kingdom. He loves to redeem and work through all types of people. He refuses temptation and remains focused. He models and teaches kingdom living. Our thoughts motivation, and motivations matter. He's perfect. His standard is perfection. He desires mercy and calls sinners. Compassion is a main emotion of his. He still calls disciples to follow, be trained, live like him, and prioritize him above all else. Jesus is compelling. Nothing is impossible for him. He's building his church and nothing will successfully overcome it. Amen. Kathy, would you come and close? Amen. Wow. The gospels are um, full. <laughs> They're very meaty and weighty and they have so much to offer. But the thing that I believe he's saying today through this message is, are you answering his call? You know, he's calling you in to follow him, but to also be part of his family. You know, the whole design of Jesus was not just to rescue just you, but to put you in a family. You realize that, right? Like he established the church so you'd have others to be with you. And so I just, I just challenge you today. Are you answering his call? Are you doing what he's asked you to do? Do you know what he's asked you to do? And if you're not part of a church, we're a good one. A church is where you learn how to submit to authority, which is right. It's where you learn how to be loved and how to give love. A church is a family. It's a good family. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you most of all, that you gave up your son to die so that we might live. 
you allowed him to suffer so that we could be reconciled with you. We could know the benefits of having a dad who's perfect and worthy of our devotion. We thank you for your gift to us. And I ask for everyone in this room to be able to receive that gift. If anyone is here who hasn't received it yet, that they would do so today so they could know your promises and live in your love. We thank you for what you're doing today. In Jesus' name, amen.